Oh, right on. Man, this pulpit's bigger than my whole life. <laughs> Need some small people pulpits in this church. Hey, uh, turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. Uh, going back into the letter to the Philippians by the Apostle Paul. Just to give you a reminder, the last time we were in Philippians in chapter 3, Paul made the statement that we were citizens in heaven, that our identity is uh, are as, as men and women who have new identities based on our new citizenship in heaven. So everything that we're going to be reading in the next four verses is going to come flow straight from that identity. Philippians chapter 4, start reading in verse 1. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I also ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we know because of what you said in your word that you are watching over your word to perform it. Recognize, Lord, that even before we were gathered in this building together to to hear from your Holy Spirit, you were already watching over your word to perform it for transformation in the lives of, of men and women who would accept it, Lord. And so we utterly expect your transformational power, God, in our lives. We choose not to see your word as just a book or a piece of literature or some sound advice. We choose to believe in utter expectation That as we believe on your word, we believe in your promises, you will unleash your power on this congregation this afternoon. Lord, we're we're declaring right now that we would have no less than your power and your your presence being displayed in, in this room. We need an encounter from the living God today. You declare that your word implanted is what's useful for the saving of souls and for the continual saving of souls. And so, Lord, we look to your word, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We look to the Holy Spirit as the one who will bring light upon these things. And we pray that you would use it to change us to be more like Jesus Christ. We need you. We want you, Lord. Come to hear from our Master and our God. So teach us today in Jesus' name, amen. Title of uh, the sermon this afternoon is called Joy and Gospel Community uh, to carry on the, the theme of the last few sermons about joy and about the gospel in Philippians chapter four. Many of us, perhaps as we've been going sermon to sermon or we've been going through the book of Philippians or we've been going through our own little Bible studies, picking up on what Jesus has done for us, knowing what the gospel is. Maybe you don't know it. Maybe you do know it. I think it's, it's summed up pretty nicely in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for this, uh, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So we know about the gospel, that it's good news about someone doing something 
Jesus, who has done something that we could not do on our behalf, and everything about that news is powerful for our transformation. Now, some of us understand the extent of that transformation in our own lives. I can look around at this room and see people that I know personally. And I'll lump myself in that group as well. Our lives have been changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is not Paul's point this morning. The next four verses are not necessarily what the gospel does to transform the individual, but in a broader sense, what the gospel then does to transform communities. In this case, our little church. In that the gospel is so incredibly powerful, incredibly supernatural, that it does not stop with you, but that it spills out of your life into everybody around you. You think you're experiencing something wonderful and something incredible in your own life and in your heart? Start to be around other people that are experiencing the same thing. And then you have the church. This is what Paul wants us to understand today. In fact, I think the scriptures ahead of us would let me go so far as to say that without a firm grasp on the gospel, a continual grasp on the gospel, we will wreck our relationships with one another. And in doing so, we'll wreck Christ's reputation among outsiders. So as Paul is going through this, he's not just throwing out some weird Greek names. He's giving us supernatural access the throne room of God for the reconciliation of our own relationships. We need this today. Starts off by greeting the Philippian church. I love whenever Paul is about to greet someone right before he's going to go into one of his tirades or right before he's going to be revealing or exposing something with the gospel. He starts off by just lavishing on the love. Just verse 1, my beloved my joy, my crown, I long to see you. My beloved, he says it again. Stand firm in the Lord. This is going to be the theme that he's repeating through the next four verses. Stand firm in the Lord. You can go through the entire chapter, Philippians chapter 4, and never see him mention the word gospel, and he doesn't need to. The entire chapter is dripping with the gospel. And he starts off with that first line, stand firm in the Lord. Whenever he says that, you've got to unpack the meaning behind what he's saying. He's not just throwing out just some cheesy greeting. He's saying, uh, depending on the person of Jesus Christ and the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished, I want you to stand firm in that together. Everything that Christ has ever been about, everything that he is, everything that he does, everything that, that he has done to affect you as a Christian, I want you to stand firm in that reality. Ultimately, what Christ has done to redeem people is to give them what they never could have gotten on their own, right standing with God. By taking the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin, being punished for it on the cross, imputing His righteousness to your empty account. And in that great exchange, we are given the greatest gift humanity has ever known, approval with God. Lavishes His grace on us. Now, that is still how the gospel affects me. 
That's still how the gospel affects you. How the gospel starts to affect the community upon which we come and gather and upon which we relate to one another is when we begin to apply that same grace towards one another. I begin looking at you not according to your past, not according to what you are capable of, not what you're going to do, not what you're not, not going to do, not how you're going to fail me, not how you've already failed me, but on the, the, through the lens of the grace of God. I attempt to see you the same way that God sees you. Paul said to the Corinthians, I desire to see no one anymore according to the flesh. I'm putting on the lens of grace. What God has done on our behalf, remembering that the gospel is not about what we have done for the Lord, right? It's all about what the Lord has done for us when we were helpless. And that fuels our fire to do everything. That becomes our common ground in the Lord, as Paul says. So when he's saying little, little lines like stand firm in the Lord, he's not just throwing a cute line at you. He's saying everything that I just unloaded on you, stand firm in that which you know. Live it, breathe it, let it excite you. Let it stir up your affections. Exist in that place. Now if you don't apply the gospel like that in community, trouble begins to brew. Paul switches gears, gets a little more specific, showing us how this would work out in community by pulling up a couple people within the church by the name of Euodia and Syntyche. Don't quite roll off the tongue smoothly. So if you're looking to name your kid after a biblical character, I suggest Joshua, Caleb, David. Paul says to Euodia and Syntyche, I want you to live in harmony in the Lord. There's that line again. In the gospel of, the G- of Jesus Christ. One translation puts it, uh, Euodia and Syntyche, I want you to settle your agreement with one another. I want you to come to an agreement somehow. I want you to live in harmony with one another in the Lord. Now, we're not told what type of disagreement this is. We're not told what's eating at one of them. We're not even told who's right and who's wrong. As if Paul didn't even care. All that Paul cares about is that they reach a common ground with each other in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his reminder is not to one person over the other. He doesn't go up to Syntyche and be like, Yeah, Syntyche, I know you're totally right on that. I just want you to know I got your back. I'm going to go tell, you know, Uodia thing or two. Apostle Paul, what? He doesn't take anybody's side. In fact, he equally says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. As if what they were bickering about wasn't big enough to pull them apart. These two women had forgotten their common ground in Jesus Christ. Functionally, they had lost track of what they had in common with one another. And Paul isn't urging them to agree with their disagreements. He's not trying to persuade one with the other. And he's not saying agree just for the sake of agreement. He's not saying, hey, peace with everybody. Let's just all try to get along and not have any fights. 
Rather, in that, he is appealing to something far greater. He's saying, in this, work it out in Jesus Christ. Standing firm in the Lord. Practical way we've tried to work this out among us. At the church is through this unwritten church policy called open hand, closed hand. This is how we treat certain teachings in the Bible. If you notice, there's certain things that the Bible teaches that are absolutely essential to being a Christian, right? I mean, there's important stuff in there, right? Like that Jesus is God in the flesh. That's kind of important to believe if you're a Christian, right? That he rose from the dead on the third day in a literal heaven, a literal hell. The existence of those things, our sin, our need for a savior, the existence of God in three persons. These are some doctrines that Christians for thousands of years have held essential to our Christian faith. Meaning you absolutely cannot compromise on them. In fact, they are so essential to what we believe that we're willing to divide on them. Meaning, if you were to go to a church somewhere in town that didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, I would tell you to stop going there. And you should tell someone to stop going there. There's certain teachings in the Bible that our entire faith is situated on. You can find what most of those are by looking at any Christian church website. Pull down the statement of faith. They're usually conglomerated right there. We have ours right there. And they're generally about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Things that we absolutely will not budge on, even if it causes offense. Now, there's actually a lot of teachings in the Bible, right? Kind of a big book. A lot of weird teachings in the Bible. And a lot of stuff in the Bible that not all of us have gotten down. Now, Everything that the Bible teaches is absolutely important. Paul said, every scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuke, training up in righteousness, and the man of God would be adequate for every good work. Everything that the Bible teaches is absolutely important on. But some of them we hold with an open hand. By that we mean with humility, with flexibility, with an understanding that we might be wrong. And look at what that does. Look at how that causes me to treat you. Within the church of Christianity, there's people with a variety of beliefs about all kinds of stuff, right? Spiritual gifts. One group of people might believe that the gifts are everyone should have every gift, especially tongues. All Christians should have tongues, speak in tongues all over the place, all day, every day, everywhere. I kind of disagree but I don't sweat you. I can sit right next to you in this church, side by side with you in the glory of the Most High God because I have enough in common with you, brother. Maybe on the opposite end of the spectrum, there's someone who who thinks totally different. You're like, not only tongues, but every gift. No tongues, no gift, no spirit, no nothing, no happiness. I totally disagree with you. But I don't care. All that I'm interested in is is in your joy as we sit side by side. Perhaps we'll make it to the carpets together, take communion, and worship the God of our salvation because that's what we have in common and that is all that is needed. 
You see what that does within the church? It keeps us from having to take on labels and titles and make factions and little clubs. We are all in the same family. We are bound together in the Lord by who he is and what he has done. Settle your disagreements, Yodia and Syntyche. They're just not big enough to pull you apart. Paul then, in the next verse, turns to one of his friends in verse 3. He says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Now, we don't know who his friend is, if he's working at the church, if he's an elder, or if he's just a nobody, or if he's a friend that he just pulled aside. Nor do I think it matters for what we're talking about now. It's the second part of the sentence that I want us to look at. I urge you, True companion, I ask that you also would help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. In other words, these weren't just women that were trying to cause trouble. It wasn't two people that just randomly popped into the church and were causing a ruckus. These were seasoned, faithful veterans of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These women knew the gospel. He was simply reminding them of their roots. All that seemed to matter for Paul was their common bond in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that it is enough for us to agree on. That is the only bond we need in order to come into this building together. That our names, as Paul says in verse 3, are written in the book of life. That is my greatest privilege that I share with you. We're going to need a sure foundation like that to, 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 to spur us on in times of need because there is no other foundation to stand on. Look around at you. You're surrounded by sinful, messed up people. You're all together. And we will hurt one another. We'll say silly, dumb things. We'll offend one another. We have selfish tendencies upon which we act on, don't we? We have pride. I have pride. We engage in each other's drama and we make it worse. At the very least, we get stressed, we get irritated, we get annoyed, we get a little angry at other people and we act out on those tendencies because we have no other foundation to stand upon except the gospel Sometimes we view the church in slightly too romantic terms. We have this fairy tale version of the church upon which we love to live. And what we see for two hours on Sunday mornings, everything's perfect, smiles on our faces. We do that with fellowship and community as well. Those are such trendy buzzwords. Oh, let's have community and fellowship. Yeah. By that, what I really mean as a guy is Saturday morning, all my best guy buddies will come over. We'll watch a football game. We'll eat nachos. We'll have a grand old time. We'll barbecue, tri-tip, we'll watch more games, and then they'll build me a hot rod. And then tomorrow we'll do it again. And none of my enemies will be there, only my favorite people, and they'll all say beautiful things about me. And we'll do that Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, and that's fellowship. I don't know what it is for, for the gals. The gals will get together, we'll have like a Tupperware party or whatever. <laughs> but we have this fairy tale view sometimes of what it means to be the church. And let's just be honest with one another. Real church 
is real messy because there's real people in it. Real community is really messed up. We need a foundation to stand upon. Tim Keller once described the church as a gathering of natural-born enemies who have gathered together on Sunday because the love of God has compelled them to do so. And look around. There are people in this room that you would never associate with had it not been for the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring you here. So that's what we're dealing with. Broken people that God wants to restore and make new. We're going to make mistakes with each other. We're going to hurt each other. Paul isn't downplaying those hurts, those betrayals, the feelings, the disagreements. He's not saying, you know, just put on a happy face and fake it. Let people steamroller you or run over you. He's not saying make light of those situations. Rather, he's appealing to something far greater than our selfish tendencies. He's appealing to the gospel as that which will keep us together as we go through difficult situations. We can't deal with these problems apart from the gospel. Without that understanding, we will let the silliest things pull us apart. I confess, I have this tendency to think of certain sins sometimes as far greater than other sins. A lot of us have this tendency. We view like these top shelf sins as the ones that are super evil, you know, like murder and stealing and killing and stuff that we would never do. Very careful not to be that way. Then there's a list of other sins which in the sight of God are equal but in our sight are sometimes a little more acceptable. There are respectable sins. How many of us would feel so judgmental towards a person that we saw was caught in adultery or fornication? Or if we ran into an old friend who who was just at a prayer meeting, we just saw him on State Street or downtown Ventura drunk. How, how How judgmental could we be towards people like that? in our own righteousness, and yet, days after Thanksgiving, how many of us brag about how full we are? Why do we hate certain sins, but we make jokes about gluttony, which Proverbs declares is a sin? Some of the most subtle sins are some of the most destructive within community. Let me give you some examples. Backbiting. How many of us in this church right now have been brutally marred because of what someone has said about you? How many of us have brutally hurt somebody because of what we said about them? Pretty sure everyone knows what backbiting is, but just in case, it's very simple. It's any time you are speaking behind someone's back about them with malicious intent that will result in damaging their reputation somehow. Anything you say behind someone's back that will damage their reputation. Malicious intent. Did you hear about Susie Q? I did. Let me tell you about it. Yeah, she comes on Sunday and she looks like she's got it all together, but I saw her on Tuesday. And let me tell you a few things about Susie Q. She's sleeping around and rumor has it she's pregnant. You'll never guess with who. Pastor's kid. 
Yeah, remember that pastor? The one from down the street at that one church that's going through all that financial shakedown? God have mercy on him. Backbiting. Ruins people. Distant cousin to uh, backbiting, but I think more subtle and far more dangerous is gossip. Backbiting is with malicious intent. Gossip is often with casual, maybe even good intent. So you're still damaging somebody's reputation. Sometimes to satisfy our desire to sin because our minds aren't being renewed by the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll use the funniest excuses to engage in some of these sins under the greatest of intentions. Maybe we just want to be more informed about the life of the church, right? That's it. Hey, did you hear, hear about uh, Bobby Joe? I, don't know. I haven't, but I heard some things and I just wanted to check with you. Could you just fill me in? Oh, you don't know? Okay, I'll ask someone else. Hey, yeah, did you hear about Bobby Q? I heard from the other person that you did this. Is that true? Oh, really? Wow, that sucks. Okay, let me double check your story. Hey, have you heard about such and such? Oh, no, okay. Have you ever tried to mask gossip under the guise of prayer? I just want to call all 10 of you together and just pray for this person. She is going through this hard time. She has stumbled into sin and we need to lift her up. So why don't you all go uh, tell 100 people that you know for prayer? Friends, the greatest litmus test for whether you're gossiping or not is regardless of what you're trying to do, what is the end result for that person's reputation and honor? If you're damaging their reputation and their honor, it doesn't matter what you're praying. Ephesians 4.29, Paul said, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. When I'm speaking about you, when we're speaking about each other, even though I don't hear you, even though I don't know what you're saying, are you lending supernatural grace to me? Is what you're saying causing other people to be edified? Just gets worse from there. Slander, the Bible points out. Unlike gossip and backbiting, slander is usually a false statement. Could be something you make up on the fly. Could be something you exaggerate. It could be speculations that you're going by. But it is a false statement that damages somebody's reputation. Grudges, another respectable sin that nobody knows about except for us, right? Now, anger isn't a sin. God gets angry, and in his anger is righteous. Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger for good practical reason too. Once you just let that anger just simmer in your heart, you start to notice something going on, right? You just begin dwelling more and more on your anger. And it just gets blown more and more out of proportion. You start to think, you just start dwelling on what they did. And you just keep replaying in your head. I can't believe they did that to me. I can't believe this happened. And it's just like a replayed tape going back in your head until it just gets out of control. You stop thinking about what they did to you and what you're going to do to them or what you're going to say to them to their face or how you're going to... 
You might not even act on it at all, but in your heart, you are replaying this tape, holding a grudge. Jealousy, wanting something from somebody else. All of these are subtle sins that nobody sees, but that everybody feels. Paul said in verse 31 of Ephesians 4, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Look at this next line. Just as God through Christ has forgiven you. There's the gospel. Paul is saying it again. I want you to stand firm in the Lord. Everything that I'm saying is flowing forth from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this means we have to know more than just with a theoretical head knowledge, more than just in passing, and more than just what the preacher or our friends tell us. We need to know experientially, deeply, more than we know anything else, the gospel of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Everything will flow forth from that. Look at all the sermon titles in the book of Philippians that we've been doing. Gospel partnerships, gospel growth, gospel surfing. Suffering. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised. You know our pastor. (laughs) Gospel unity. Gospel obedience. Gospel gain. Gospel discontent. Gospel citizenship. Joy in Jesus, I think G taught on a while ago. It's like Paul is trying to tell us something. Gospel, 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 Jesus. Stand firm in the gospel, Paul says. Sometimes we view the gospel as level one of our Christianity only to be bypassed when we grow in maturity. Have you ever met someone who just met the Lord? I love those people. I love them and I want to be around them my entire life. It's like they just got saved out of darkness. They just got transferred into the kingdom of of, of light by Jesus Christ and they can't stop talking about it. All they're doing is just facing the Bible. You're like, hey, you want to go grab a burrito? No. They're just, just pages. They're just eating. They're all, do you know what that means? No. Just, I don't care. They're just eating it. That's all they can think about. And they're so excited. And then we come along. Some spiritual Christian comes along and we're just like, oh, well, now that you're saved, let me tell you how Christianity is supposed to be. Let me tell you about advanced Christianity. You need to learn Bible study and you need to learn hermeneutical, situational, apologetical, exegetical Bible study of the Greek and the Aramaic and the Hebrew and you need to do this and you need to go through the whole Bible in a year and you need to pray and go to all the prayer meetings and you need to do this and you need to be serving in every single ministry and you need to be doing all things and you need to learn to preach and you need to learn to do this and you need to never sin ever, ever, ever and you need to not do that thing that, yeah, yeah, that thing which isn't in the Bible but I don't like it, you need to do all of this stuff. (laughs) And we begin pouring burdens that they were not meant to bear. And I love the response of some of them with their limited gospel vocabulary. All they know is like Jesus, cross, and hallelujah. (laughs) And you're pouring all, they get all this stuff poured on them and they're just like, freeze up. I love Jesus. The gospel is never something that we grow familiar with and it's never something that we move on from. When you're 98 years old, you should be breathing deeply from the gospel. 
if we've left it behind, if we thought we grow, we've grown familiar with it so that we can go on to something else, we've been fooling ourselves. One ounce of the character of Jesus Christ is enough to exhaust the mind of mortal men. Who are we to think that we could be familiar with anything about him? You could be drinking deeply of everything about the gospel for the rest of your life, and it'll show by transforming you forever. When it does this, you'll start to notice a pattern. You'll start to notice you're thinking less about yourself and more about other people. Or as one author put it, considering others is more important than yourself. That's just the natural tendency of someone who has gotten the gospel. feel like we need that in Ventura County to begin cultivating a culture of honor here among us that people can come to. A culture of honor that is not based on your merit, but on grace given to you. In other words, I am not looking at you because of what you're able to do for me or how you failed me or what you're going to do in the future or what you didn't do in the past, but what Jesus Christ has done for you and done for me, that becomes our common bond together. We need to cultivate a culture of honor like that of all places in Ventura County, amen? How many of us have come just from church to church because we've been burned We've been betrayed, we've been offended, we've been wronged by people who profess to be Christians. How many people have we wronged? How many churches today in this county are plagued by people who are backbiting, gossiping, slandering one another and slandering the name of Christ because of how they treat one another? And we are the burgeoning example of the love of God to the world. We must be the ones by the transforming power of God to establish a culture of honor where anybody could come through those doors and we will immediately treat them the way that God treated us through His grace. And it doesn't matter what you've done. And it doesn't even matter what you will do. Romans 12.10 Paul says, Outdo one another in showing honor. And I start to notice that as that's, the gospel is transforming and you just begin to walk in that, you're going to start to notice old relationships that maybe went unresolved, broken relationships, unresolved issues, people in your past, people in your present that you're not hitting it off with, maybe people that you had a falling out with. It could be someone all the way across the room. It could be someone that doesn't go to your church. It could be someone as close as your spouse sitting right next to you. It could be your children. It could be your parents. In which there are still unresolved issues that have not been treated by the power of the gospel. And the gospel compels you to treat them with reconciliation. God commands it. I think Paul put it best in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you hear that? Christ reconciled you to himself so that you could spread reconciliation in a community. In your workplace, at your home, in church, on the street. 
Not only does he command us to, to reconcile, but it's the evidence that we get the gospel. Our citizenship is in heaven. He just got done saying, right after that, he says, Therefore, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. It's also our witness. It doesn't just affect us as a church, but it spills out into the community. Do you know that Ventura is watching you? Whether you like it or not. Jesus said, you'll know they're my disciples because of their love for one another. On the dark side of that coin, if we don't practice reconciliation on a regular basis, we will grieve the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Paul said in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Look at how you can grieve the Holy Spirit. He says in the next verse, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Not only that, but without reconciliation operating on a regular basis in our life, we run the risk of offering worship that is empty and even hypocritical. Apostle said in James 3, verse 8 and 9, our, our tongues are set on fire by hell. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Brothers, it ought not be that way. Apostle John said in 1 John 4, 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. We've got to let the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ not simply affect us, but affect our gathering and our family. I've got bad news. You're still a broken person just like me and you can't do it. Paul offers, I believe, sound encouragement in Ephesians 5. This is the last passage I want to leave with you. Speaking about a gathering in the context of worship, he says in verse 18, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control you. So left to ourselves, we'll ruin each other. We must have the power of the Holy Spirit being poured out on us on a constant basis. We have to be a gathering that is filled with the Holy Spirit all the time. Second, we can't just let go and let God, as the saying goes. We've got to go. We've got to put that supernatural transformation to work by practicing reconciliation with each other. In verse 21 of Ephesians 5, Paul says, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In that culture of, of, of honor, we are submitting to one another. We are putting each other's desires above our own. You know how radical that would be if we actually did that? I want you to just daydream for a second and imagine the church of Jesus Christ in Ventura putting everybody else's 
dreams, everyone else's ambitions and passions, everyone else's desires, everyone else's concerns on the pedestal above their own. Do you know how radically that would transform broken people in this county to experience that real love? It's only by the Holy Spirit that you can actually do that. Submit to one another. And it's only in submitting to one another that we can truly worship Jesus. Lastly, we get the reward of gathering together in the name of Jesus with men and women who have tasted reconciliation, falling on our faces, lifting our hands, throwing our voices in unison with those who have tasted what we have tasted. Verse 19 and 20, Then you will sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts, and you will always give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't do Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon on accident. When we gather together as a group of people, we do it with the deepest intent. So that many voices would together be edified by each other, like mirrors reflecting the glory of God to one another. Seeing together what we have in common in our standing in the Lord. That we have a super, uh, supernatural bond by virtue of Christ's blood, and we would be compelled to fall on our faces together. And receive the blessing of Jesus Christ as given by the Spirit. So we're going to do that now. Knowing that the reason we show up in mass on Sunday morning. Is so that we can pour out together. Now when I see you lifting up your hands. When I see you singing to the Lord. I am edified by that. Because I see another person that Jesus Christ has touched. Who could not help themselves. I really believe that this afternoon God wants to heal us of deeper stuff. I believe that God wants to heal me of deep-seated stuff, religion, fear of man, approval of man, trying to go through the motions, everything that the gospel addressed specifically. One of your greatest reward is that you're going to notice that broken relationships are going to be mended together and you are going to be the minister of that reconciliation. You have been left here on this earth to reconcile that which is broken by the power of Jesus Christ. There might be some of you here today who are going at it with somebody. It might be someone outside of the church. It might be someone right next to you. It might be someone across the building. I don't know. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the front of the altar. Go, be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift in worship. For some of you, as we start strumming chords and worshiping God, what worship is going to be like for you is to get out of your seat and go into the foyer. Call that person on your phone now. Go to the opposite end of the room. Apologize. Well, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't care. You shouldn't care. God doesn't care. The gospel wants to reconcile relationships. It might be someone right, sitting right next to you. This is the supernatural power of God 
being put on display in a group of people. And this is how we get to verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord, I say. Rejoice. Heavenly Father, come before you in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done in this church from the very beginning, all that you have done in lives, Lord. You're not starting today to just show yourself great. Today isn't the first time that you've started to transform, but Lord, as your people, I pray that you would give us an insatiable appetite for who you are. That this afternoon we would say, more, Lord. I don't want to live on the grace that was given to me yesterday. I want more of you, God. I pray that today we would be like Jacob who wrestled with you. I pray that we would be able to say with boldness like your children, we refuse to leave this building unless we have been encountered by the living God. And I pray for your sons and your daughters here today that we would move past a head knowledge and that we would experience the living presence of God in our midst. And I pray that it would bubble over. It would begin to affect each other. And it would be something that we'd be able to take out into our community, spreading the gospel far and wide so that the nations could come and know you. But first, we ask, Lord, with a holy boldness that you would begin with us. As we lift up your name in worship, I pray that you would heal us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, goal of this afternoon is not to try harder or to work reconciliation. It's first and foremost to meet the Son of God. Even for those of you that have known Christ for 90 years, this is your time to meet Him again. I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would descend upon this congregation. We would know Him like we've never known Him before. And whatever you need to do for that to be accomplished, you want to go to the corner of the building and hide out, you want to get on your face on the carpets, you want to remind yourself because of, through the sacraments, you want to apologize and ask forgiveness to somebody, you want to get prayer for someone on the left or right, you must do it. I implore you as your friend and as your brother in Christ that you not settle for less in this life than everything that Christ is willing to pour out on you. Let's go deep right now. In Jesus' name.